Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Today we're going to look at an encounter that a soldier had in the New Testament with Jesus. And I want to reframe this story, not just as an encounter of a soldier with Jesus, but as a model of how to pray. Because the reality is, is when people made requests of Jesus while he walked the earth, they were modeling for us how we can pray to him now. We see the same picture because Jesus is the one who reveals to us perfectly the nature and the character of the Father. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. If the eyes of our heart have been opened and our blindness has been removed and we ourselves have been touched in the eyes of our heart, we can see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see the full revelation that is the unveiling and the manifestation of what God the Father is like. And when Jesus walked the earth, he had authority to answer people's prayer just like he does now. I, I, I want to demonstrate this and I want to show this to you in Scripture because some of you right now are kind of going, oh, I never thought of it that way. Look at John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9 and verse 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Lord, this is Philip talking to Jesus, said Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So if you've seen Jesus... You've seen the Father. And this is really important because a lot of times we don't recognize that the greatest revelation of God to humanity is not this. Some of you are like, oh no, blasphemy. You know, we'll say, you know, this is, this is the full revelation of God. Well, yes and no. This points us to a person. The person who is the Word enfleshed. So if we want to really see what the Father is like, we can look in the words here to encounter Jesus, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, that shows us truly and fully what God is like. When God wanted to speak a final word, when He wanted to complete the revelation of Scripture, He gave us His Son. The law and the prophets embodied in a person. So when we see Jesus... We see the full revelation of who God is. If you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. Now, some of you in the room right now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I've never seen Jesus. And I'm not talking about with these eyes. I'm talking about with the eyes of the heart that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1. When he prays for the eyes of our heart or to be enlightened or our understanding to be enlightened. So uh, you may not realize it, but you have a second set of eyes. Right, they're the eyes of the heart, the eyes of your understanding. And God will open those eyes and give you the ability to see what is unseen and to encounter one who is unseen. Can I get an amen? amen. 
And then Jesus says, if you ask anything in his name, he will do it. And then when you ask anything in his name, it glorifies the Father in the Son. Now, this is really important because uh, have any of you ever struggled in your prayer life because you're not sure who to pray to? Let me see, do I pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or do I say, Lord Jesus? Or is it okay to talk to the Holy Spirit? You know, and, and we get all confused and we get gummed up because we have this idea in our mind based upon what we know of the human world and three dimensions. We have this idea, idea that somehow if we don't say it right and we don't do it right and we don't get the formula right, uh, we're going to somehow mess it up. That somehow God's going to go, oh, you didn't say the right words. La, 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 la. <laughs> right? And so what we see actually is an overlapping idea throughout the Gospels as Jesus teaches on prayer, that you can address the Father and you can address the Son. And then we have this amazing scripture in the book of Acts in the 13th chapter when they were fasting and praying and worshiping and it says there, and the Holy Spirit said to them, and it uses that terminology, the Holy Spirit said to them. And how did the Holy Spirit say it to them? The Holy Spirit spoke through people through a gift of prophecy and then said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to do. And so we see the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit engaged with us. And so we can talk to Jesus, we can talk to the Father, and it's not like there's a disconnect because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. One essence, three distinct persons in one essence, indivisible And there is no weird, like, I'm not sure quite how to say it. Just talk to God. Sometimes you might be like, Jesus, help. You're in good company. That's a great prayer. You're right up there with David and a number of biblical characters when you say, Jesus, help. If you say, Father, help, or God, or Lord, it's okay. Because coming in his name is not taking out the rabbit foot of Jesus' name. It's not a rabbit foot. Coming in his name is coming in his nature and his character. Coming to him in who he is. Understanding that the name is backed by the person. So when I come in Jesus' name, I come in all that he is. And the Father hears me. The Son hears me. The Holy Spirit hears me. Amen? And if we ask him, he'll do it. So... I give you that background because we have a story where there's this centurion, this soldier, this Roman soldier, and he has an encounter with Jesus while Jesus is on the earth. But it's a perfect picture of how we can communicate with Jesus in desperate straits, even right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, that is pleading our case on behalf of his own sacrifice As he pleads our case on our behalf, he stands on our behalf and brings us before the Father. We know he hears us in heaven the same way he heard the centurion on earth. So let's look at the text. It's Matthew 8, 5 through 13. I love this story. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. And I'll describe who the centurion is in a minute. This is what he says. He's appealing to him. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east, east and west, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said, go, excuse me, and, the cent- and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Somebody say, Bam. Mic drop, right? Now, let's get into a little bit of character background here, and I obviously have to move really quickly here, but first of all, let's talk about the centurion. What is a centurion? A centurion was a Roman army officer equivalent to a present-day sergeant with 100 soldiers under his command. Typically, he would have been despised by many of the Jews of that region because they would have seen him as being the commander over the occupying army in their land, and they would have seen him as an enemy and an oppressor. However, in most of the New Testament, centurions are put in a positive light. According to Luke's gospel account of this same story, this particular centurion had a very good reputation as a man who loved Israel and helped them build a synagogue. Look at Luke chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Same story, a little bit more information. In verse 3 here, it says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So this man already had an awareness that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites was the true God. That the idols and the false pantheon of gods that the Roman, the Greco-Roman world worshipped were false gods and that Yahweh was a true God and he was among the covenant people of God and he was leaning into that and so he built him a synagogue. But not only did he build him a synagogue, but now he comes to Jesus and he knows something about Jesus. This man is different. He carries an authority with him. All he has to do is speak and things happen. I believe in him and so he comes to Jesus in desperate straits and in need, and Jesus listens to him. So let's break this down and let's look at it. What's the prayer of faith that moves the heart of God? The first thing I want you to notice in the text is that a humble approach opens the heart of God. A humble approach. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, appealing to him. And this word appeal means to call out to come alongside in desperation and deep need. It shows that sense of desperate trust and deep humility because it's possible, and you see this in the text, it is possible to be both bold and humble at the same time. And you know, sometimes we don't think those two things can go together. But we can come before God boldly because of what Christ has done, but we also need to come before Him humbly. And humility is just us simply saying, What's in front of me can't be accomplished by me. I need divine help, and I know I can't do it, so I come before you and I appeal to you, God, hear my prayer, 
right? But you can say it boldly. You don't have to be like, I know, you know, most of the time what we do is rehearse. You know, we come into prayer. Most of us, sadly, the first thing we do is we start to rehearse our sin and all that's wrong with us. You know, even in the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave us, we don't even get to sin until way down the list. We start out with our Father who art in heaven. So we're acknowledging our identity and the fact that He's God and He's Father and we're children. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We spend some time praising Him. Your kingdom come, your rule, your reign, your government, all the beautiful and good things that come with it. Let it come out of heaven and to the earth, into my life, into my circumstances. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, and then it's also corporate, give us this, this day the bread we need, our daily provision, right? And then he says, and forgive us. So we've already spent time acknowledging that we're sons and daughters and he's father and he's worthy of praise and he, he brings his rule and reign to the earth and he gives us everything we need to live our life before we ever say forgive us. Isn't that profound? Why is it that way? It's that way because otherwise we'll get caught in the vortex of self, the deep black dark hole of all that we don't like about ourselves, and we'll just rehearse to God over and over all that's wrong with us and we'll never really get to the important stuff of prayer and that is partnership with God who wants to bring heaven to earth. Am I talking to anybody? Okay. Secondly, honor and reverence opens the heart of Jesus. Verses six through eight. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the, the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, the first thing he does is he calls him Lord. Now, this is profound. This is the same term used to denote a recognition of who Jesus really was and is. Lord is the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to speak of the God of God as the master and owner of everything. This officer recognized that Jesus was the ultimate master over everything, including disease. He understood something. Whatever's happening with my servant is beyond human power and touch, but you're different. You have a, an authority. You have, an, a pow, you have a power that requires even whatever is afflicting him to obey what you say. Amen. Wow, that's powerful. This guy had faith, right? And this centurion, think about it, this centurion was a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, and Jesus was a Jew. The culture and the custom of that time and the law of the Jews forbid them from eating in a Gentile home. So though Jesus is willing to go, think about it. Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. The centurion goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I respect and I honor your culture and your custom. And I, I know that that'll just make your mission harder. People are already resisting you and fighting you on every front. And I don't want to add to that. So listen, all you need to do, I, I honor your boundaries and your culture. All you need to do is say the word. And this showed deep respect and deep honor for Jesus. Honor and reverence opens the heart of Jesus. Why is this important? Well, now hear my heart on this, okay? How, how many of you know that we have a tendency when it comes to truth to swing pendulums? And let me explain what I mean. You know, like, like in the church sometimes we'll get a hold of a certain reality and truth about God or about life and we'll, we'll go to an extreme. And usually in the extreme swing of the truth, people get hurt. 
And then we see it. People are getting hurt. That's not healthy. That's too far. And so what do we do? We compensate. But unfortunately, human beings are terrible about compensating in a balanced and biblical way. And so what do we do? We swing the pendulum way over to the other side. Right? And so, you know, people that grew up with a certain view of God in reverence and honor thought, you know, you come before him and, you know, you know, the fear of the Lord is a real thing, honoring him, you know, recognizing who he is. And so you come before him and you're like, and, and then you think, you know, I got to use all the right words now and I got to say it right and I got to do it right. Oh, most holy and magnificent almighty God who can turn me into a, a grease bought on the earth right now. I know I'm a scumbag and I don't desire, deserve to be in your presence and, and oh God, please don't, re-. you know, we, we, in the name of reverence and awe and recognizing the holiness of God, we go too far, right? And we don't approach God as what? As children. And so years ago, people began to, you know, really emphasize the reality of the fact that God is Abba. He's Father. And you can come to Him as a loving Father, as somebody who's particularly fond of you, who, who really, really is passionately in love with you, and who's a dad who wants to take care of you and protect you and, and be everything in your life that you need. And so people start being like, you know, Daddy God and Abba God, and you know, and I, I get it, and before you know it, Jesus is my boyfriend, and then Jesus is my homeboy, and then like the big guy upstairs, and Jesus, is my br- and before you know it, we've, we've kind of taken the almighty, holy, pure, awesome God, and we've boiled him down to human, a, a human manageable position. We've made him a manageable God. And how many of you know that's not the God of the Bible, that's an idol that we've made out of our own mind? And so the truth is both. He's Abba. He loves us. And he is an all-consuming fire. He is holy. He's a being that we can't begin to even wrap our head around. He has to veil himself to protect us. Not because he's mean, but because he's just pure light, fire, beauty, holiness, and we're not. Right? So we come to Father recognizing he's still God. Anybody with me? Somebody just yawned really big, so I'm hoping I'm not putting you to sleep. Okay, number three, (laughs) compassion for others moves the heart of Jesus. Oh, I got to move here. Compassion for others. I love this. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. The Greek word for servant here indicates a young boy. This strong, battle-hardened centurion had likely seen a whole lot of death in his life. And yet he had a heart of compassion for his servant boy. He seems to have had the ability to empathize with the suffering of this boy and care deeply for him. In that culture, he could have adopted him as a son. And maybe he was moving in that direction. And so the centurion recognized that he was powerless to help this boy. And he he desperately looks to Jesus. And this compassion moved the heart of Jesus to listen to the centurion. One theme you see over and over again in the Gospels is is that Jesus is moved with compassion. He looks out on the crowd. He sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're downcast. They're beaten down. And the scripture says he was moved with compassion and he healed them. 
over and over. He's moved with compassion. He heals them. He forgives them. He loves them. He reconciles them. You see this idea that God is a God who's moved with compassion. Now, Jesus looks to a man who's moved with compassion, and he's like, ah, I put that part of me in you. That thing you feel for your servant, that's how I am. Yeah, what do you need? What do you want? I'll gladly give it to you. Second, these attitudes, or excuse me, fourth, <laughs> can't, ca- can't uh, count anymore, but these attitudes of heart make Jesus willing to act. I love it. And he said to them, I'll come and heal him. R- remember, I'm trying to get us to think about our prayer life with God. And some of us in this room, we really believe that God is unwilling or that maybe he listens to certain people. Sometimes people go, hey, Pastor Doug, I know that you have a, a hot line. What's the word? Not hot line. Hot line? Yeah. Direct line to God because you're a pastor. Could you pray for this? And I'm like, no. Well, yes, but no. I don't have a hotline. Well, I do, and so do you, and his name is Jesus. See, he removed the barriers, and none of us need a priest anymore because we have the great high priest, and his name is Jesus. We don't need a, any other mediator. We don't need any other go-between. We've got the go-between, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's our hotline to heaven. He's our hotline to the Father, and if we come in his name, his nature, his character, and who he is, God is willing. Now, sometimes, you know, it will take time. Sometimes there will be a desperation that has to grow in us. Because the truth is, is a lot of us are half-hearted about our prayers. Okay, hey, yeah, you know, God, could you, hey, hey, big guy, can you help me out with this situation? You know, and the Lord's like, hey, I don't think you really mean it. Like, you're not, that's not very, you're, you're not really acting like you love me much or you respect me much. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm just saying he, sometimes it requires in our journey with God a growing desperation. And this man was desperate. Who knows what he had already done, what doctors he'd communicated with, uh, what kind of home remedies they'd come up with, but they came to a point where he recognized he was powerless and he needed divine help. And sometimes that's what we have to come to. We have to come to a point where we, we've already done everything. We've used all of our credit cards. We've called every favor in. We've knocked on every door. And now, unfortunately, God is our last resort rather than our first. And, and, and that's okay. We're, now we're at the place where we're desperate. And then we pray real prayers. You know what a real prayer is, right? It's like, Lord, I really, I need help. Okay. 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 Still with me? You see, these attitudes of humility, honor, respect, and compassion please God. God has obviously already been at work in this man's heart. He's been building those qualities in him. And so what's the heart of God toward us? I will. Immediately. I will. Next, trusting in Jesus' spiritual authority moves him to act. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to this servant, do this, and he does it. See, this, this centurion understood authority. What, what's amazing to me is how he's able to even understand spiritual authority. He knew that all Jesus had to do was speak a word. And this is powerful because Jesus is the word. And in the beginning, when everything was made, the scripture says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And then John 1.1, in complete parallel with that, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word is the Greek word pros, face to face. The Word is with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were created that are created, and on and on it goes, verse 14, and, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we understand something. When God gets something done, he says it. Bam. Right? That's how it happens. So this guy knows this about God. He understands authority. All it takes is a word. And God creates and God makes. Next, trusting. uh, uh, I'll just say this too. Um, It's really important that we embrace this idea of authority from God. We have to really believe that he has ultimate rule and reign and ultimate authority. We, we really do. It's super important that we get this because many times, you know, we say we believe, but we don't trust God's authority over our life. You all know the comedian Louis C.K.? A number of years ago, and he's been in some controversy, but a number of years ago he said this, and this is really actually very true of many of us. He said, I have a lot of beliefs and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way, if they if they get in the way of the thing I want, I sure as heck just do what I want to do. See, that's a belief that's an actual unbelief. Because A belief that doesn't transform us, a belief that isn't connected to true authority, isn't a belief at all. And many of us think that just believing, believing is just mental assent. If I just can check mark the boxes, if I can say, I believe that, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, check. I believe that He came to the earth and lived a sinless life, check. I believe He died on a Roman cross for my sin, check. I believe He was buried in my place, check. I believe He rose again from the dead, check. All right, I believe all the right things. I'm going to heaven when I die. Now I'm going to live however I want to. That's not belief. That's not trust. That's not relying upon, clinging to, Belief changes us. Belief, when we really believe in something and love something, it transforms us. I mean, think about it. Think about when you fell in love with someone. What did you want to do? You wanted to move toward them and take action. You wanted to give them gifts and you wanted to treat them with kindness and you wanted to do the things that demonstrated value that you really believed this person was worth that relationship. So love and belief will always move us to take action. So some people, you know, they get, they get caught up in, is it works or is it faith? Well, it's faith that works. So true trust and true belief in God will automatically cause us to want to live differently, please God, do the things that bring honor and joy to Him. But unfortunately, we live in a society where many people just think if they check the boxes, and they say they believe something, that that's believing something. Heard somebody recently, heard of somebody recently who justified their selling of drugs because, and this is what they said, God helps those who help themselves. And this is how I'm taking care of my needs. But I believe in Jesus and I'm like, no, something's got to give there. Those drugs you're selling are ruining lives. Stop it. 
if you believe, some actions got to correspond. Okay, anyway. Amen. I'm almost done. Oh, it's time. Quickly, here's my last point. A submitted faith in Jesus makes him marvel at us. He was bold, he was humble, he was submitted, and Jesus saw it and he marveled. It's one of the few times in all of the Bible where God marvels at us in a positive way. And he understood something. He understood that the, the, the centurion understood something that Jesus was the one who did miracles and he could trust him. And so he was willing to bank his whole life, his whole reputation upon this one. Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And this guy started climbing the stairs right away of faith. Next, faith in Jesus will bring you to, the, to feast at his table. I won't read the text, but you know what Jesus said there. He, he basically said this, the centurion and many others who come from east and west are going to feast with me. And feasting in the Bible represents relationship. It's like when you invite someone to your home and you, and you spread the table out before them and you feast together and you celebrate and you make a connection over food. You break bread together. When you break bread together and have that feast together, you're saying, I want to go deeper in relationship with you. You're my friend. And, and the more you do that, they become part of your family. They become part of your life. They become part of who you are, right? Jesus is saying many are going to come from east and west. Gentiles, non-Jews are going to come from east and west, but the children of the kingdom, they're going to be outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's he saying? He's not saying God's a meanie. He's saying God came to his own people and his own people said, we don't want what you got. We don't want your feast. We don't want your table. We don't trust you. We don't believe in you. Go from us and eventually die. And Jesus says, whoever will believe can eat with me. I offer the invitation to all. Come and eat at my table. Come and feast with me. And lastly, faith in Jesus will bring miraculous answers to prayer. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as, you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Remember, this is your prayer life. What's profound about that is that Jesus wasn't in the right location. And he didn't get on the cell phone and say, hey, connect me with the centurion servant. Hey, man, I just want you to know I'm going to pray with you over the phone and the Lord's going to heal, or I'm going to heal you. <laughs> he didn't do that. He just said to the man, let it be to you as you desire. And at that moment, wherever that servant was, he was healed. That's authority. That's profound. And you know, when we trust Jesus, we'll see life-changing results in others and ourselves. If you say you trust Jesus, your life will be different from when you didn't trust Him. It'll change your life forever to put your trust in Him. Your life will be marked by supernatural answers to prayer and the activity of God around you. He'll change you from the inside out. I have so many stories in my own life, and I know a number of you in this room do as well, and I've heard some of your stories. And I have so many stories of things that were beyond my ability to do anything about them, and God intervened. All I did was say, help! 
And here's the sad thing. If you're self-reliant and you don't learn the reality of, of, of trusting him this way, you, the sad thing is, is you won't see that kind of activity very much. You'll see some of it because God's just good and he's loving and he's kind and he'll just do some things for you. But I know some people who have had so many miraculous interventions in their life, it's hard to believe. And I also know that there are people who spend a lot of time saying, God, I need help. Amen? See, you know, Jesus is particularly fond of you. A friend of mine says that he's a pastor in Spokane and he says people don't really get it when you tell them that God loves them. Love, that word is so overused and we've devalued it in so many ways so it's been kind of drained of its power. So he tells people all the time, God is particularly fond of you. Well, what I want to say to you is God is particularly fond of you and he wants to show himself strong for you. He's passionately in love with you. And he wants your life to be marked by ongoing interventions so that people can look at your life and say, wow, I don't, how did that happen? Where did that come from? That's his way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Will you stand with me?